This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict. We'll talk about Palestinian politics, we'll talk about Israeli politics, and we'll talk about U.S. politics. President Biden has been a strong and consistent supporter of Israel throughout his career, as I have. The United States will continue to steadfastly stand by Israel. And it's our opinion, as we have always said, uh, that the exercise of democratic elections is a matter uh, for the Palestinian people uh, and for the Palestinian leadership to determine. On the 29th of April, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas indefinitely postponed elections in the occupied Palestinian territories. The elections would have been the Palestinians' first in 15 years. The last vote, in 2006, was won by the Islamist party Hamas. In response, the quartet, which comprises the European Union, Russia, the United States, and the United Nations, refused to recognize the new government unless it met three conditions. Hamas must, they said, acknowledge Israel's right to exist, renounce violence, and accept previous Israel-Palestinian agreements. Hamas refused. Since then, Israel, with U.S. backing, has blockaded the Gaza Strip, where Hamas has its de facto government. The election has also led to a rift between Hamas and Fatah, President Abbas's party. This led to a de facto split between Hamas-led Gaza and the West Bank, which Fatah nominally controls. Leaders of the two parties have been unable to reconcile since then. The elections that Abbas has postponed offered a chance to rejuvenate Palestinian institutions and potentially overcome those divisions. Time is running out for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to put together a new coalition government. He has until midnight to gain the support he needs or risk losing power. But Netanyahu has... Under President Biden's leadership, the United States has recommitted to the vision of, mutually, of a mutually agreed two-state solution, 
one in which Israel lives in peace and security alongside a viable Palestinian state. Abbas's election postponement comes at a busy time. Israelis themselves went to the polls in late March for the fourth time in two years. As we speak, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is trying, but it seems struggling to form a government. At the same time, the new US administration is mulling over its Israel-Palestine policy. In essence, how much will it seek to undo some of what Donald Trump did? His support for Israeli settlements, his backing of Israel's hard right. Some people are now calling for the US and other Western, other influential countries to focus less on the peace process, given that it appears to be going nowhere, and more on protecting Palestinian rights. Also, just two weeks ago, Human Rights Watch put out a report calling Israel's treatment of the Palestinians apartheid. That echoed a similar message from an Israeli human rights group some months ago. Today we're going to talk about all this with Daniel Levy. Daniel was a member of Israeli negotiating teams during the 1990s and 2000s. He's worked for Crisis Group in the past. He's now president of the US Middle East Project, which works in partnership with Crisis Group on the Israel-Palestine conflict. I should say that the interview runs a little bit longer than normal, but we wanted to leave the whole thing in because it's really such a rich discussion. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you both. Daniel, could you start by saying something about why these elections were so important? Well, Naz, let's just state up front that they're not a panacea. This isn't a golden elixir for getting the Palestinians out of the situation they are in. And that these are not normal elections, even had they have gone ahead. These are elections under occupation. There, by definition, can be nothing free or fair about this process in terms that we would probably talk about uh, in a routine way. These are elections for non-state structures. So let's just keep that in mind for the duration of the conversation. Having said that, the fact that you had a Palestinian political space that had not put itself to its people for relegitimization, that hadn't had that representative aspect to it, a Palestinian political space that was divided, as you mentioned, without that legitimacy. That kind of a Palestinian political space is less capable of challenging those structures of occupation, less capable of challenging the deteriorating terms and conditions of Palestinian existence and less capable of delivering freedom. There were due to be three rounds of elections, two of which were for the institutions of limited self-governance created under Oslo, a legislative council for the Palestinian Authority and the presidency of the Palestinian Authority. The third round was perhaps the least likely to eventually happen, but also perhaps the most important, because that was going to be for the Palestine National Council, which involves Palestinians everywhere, not exclusively in the occupied territories, and is elections for the national movement. And those things that I referred to uh, around political renewal are probably best addressed by that um, national movement. So whether it was the issue of Gaza's isolation or the division between the West Bank and Gaza, or just bringing new energy and agency into Palestinian political behaviour, elections were an important potential step in that direction. Hence, good idea to have had them. Sad that they're not happening. So 
taking into account everything you just said, why did Abbas cancel the elections? So when the announcement of an indefinite postponement, which amounts essentially to a cancellation, uh, was made by Abbas, he pinned that on the fact that Israel was preventing, had not responded to um, repeated Palestinian uh, requests for clarification about Palestinians voting in East Jerusalem. So these elections were due to take place in kind of three localities, the Israeli-occupied West Bank, Gaza, which I think by international law it should and is still considered occupied, but from which Israeli settlements and the military have, have formally been uh, withdrawn, but they surround and, um, and blockade, and of course there's a border with Egypt. And thirdly, in Israeli annexed East Jerusalem, an annexation not generally recognized by the world, you can't have Palestinian elections that exclude Jerusalem. Far too politically, religiously, symbolically uh, significant. According to the Oslo Accords, and in the two previous occasions, in 96 and 06, when elections have taken place, Palestinians in East Jerusalem could vote. So Abbas said, we can't do East Jerusalem, we won't vote. However, and unfortunately it's a big however, it was an announcement that had been anticipated for several weeks because the feeling was that Mahmoud Abbas went into these elections almost surprising people, but assuming he could organise the list and the politics in such a way that it would re-endorse his leadership and the status quo. And what transpired, and didn't really come as a surprise to people, was that he didn't have his own political house in order. That primarily is about his movement, the heretofore dominant movement in Palestinian politics of Fatah. Fatah splintered. There were three lists, all led by uh, previously significant Fatah figures, his own list and two others, that were going to be running in this election. Hamas was likely to emerge, given that split, quite strong. They changed the election system, so Hamas, on a minority of votes, won a clear majority of seats 15 years ago. That wouldn't have happened this time, but they may have emerged as the largest single party in, in the face of this division. Against that backdrop, Abbas's desire to just keep going looked very threatened. And I would say as well that the cancellation was made easier because no real pressure was applied either on him to go forward with elections or on Israel to remove this East Jerusalem obstacle. I consider it to be one of the areas in which you could have got the Israelis to budge. And there was a bit of a shadow dance between Abbas and the internationals. The internationals displaying characteristic weakness, but nonetheless could say, we're not convinced he really wants to go forward with this. Uh, And Abbas could say, we're not convinced you're trying to make this happen. And it made it easy, at least in some respects, for him to therefore cancel. So, Daniel, let's let's talk a little bit about the international approach. And I mean, we could start by going back to 2006, the elections, as you say, that, that Hamas won. And in response, the quartet, as we heard up top, sort of imposed these conditions on the recognition of Hamas's win, what would have been the new Hamas government. They required, as we heard, its recognition of Israel, of previous Palestinian-Israeli peace agreements and the renunciation of violence. Could you talk a little bit about 
the implications of those quartet conditions over the past sort of decade and a half and whether you get the sense that in Western capitals, leaders have sort of rethought that approach or, or were rethinking that approach as another round of Palestinian elections uh, loomed. When Hamas did well in the elections in 06, this came during the Iraq war, Bush, new Middle East, democratized Middle East, this will work in our favor um, approach. And they had pushed for elections. And lo and behold, like most things they touched in the Middle East, they apparently hadn't thought it through. Hamas wins the election. And even at the time, these were quite a bizarre set of conditions to move forward with. You had one condition, which is normally the end game, the outcome of a political process in terms of how you're going to finalise your relationship and recognition of another party. You had another condition about respecting previous agreements, which had long since been abandoned by the Israeli side. So it felt like these uh, conditions were designed to receive a negative Hamas response. Now, with the division on the Palestinian side, some parties got into quiet dialogue with Hamas, but Hamas remained a a, an organisation that was listed as a terror organisation in the US, in Europe. And this divide and inability to deal with Hamas only drove forward a, a greater inability to try and approach peace efforts, a greater inability also to try and improve the situation in Gaza, which is desperate and dire and appallingly mishandled. Now, the bizarre thing is that all the while... Israel is maintaining channels to Hamas. So you had periodic escalations, often quite devastating for the people in Gaza, often very unpleasant for the people in southern Israel. You've had these series of, of, of military escalations. Almost always, those have been ended by brokered understandings between Hamas and Israel. And yet the international community maintained this position. It feels almost ludicrous in a context in which America has been talking to the Taliban for an extended period of time and is about to withdraw from Afghanistan, something which I think is a good thing, in the context of a negotiation with the Taliban, that you still treat Hamas in this way. So we went into this election cycle with, a, with an absence of Americans or Europeans saying, OK, we've been telling the Palestinians to renew their politics, to renew their democracy. We know that's likely to lead to power sharing. The power sharing is likely to be with Hamas. What are we going to say about that? You simply didn't have an answer. The new American administration came out and repeated the quartet conditions. Until they say otherwise, that's also the position of the Europeans. So in the context of a Western response to elections, which had been telling the Palestinians, you really should have these elections. Elections are announced. There's no effort to push on the Jerusalem issue. There's no effort to prevent Israel from, for instance, arresting candidates who put their names forward, especially on the Hamas list. But there was also no rethinking of precisely the issue that you raised. And it would make sense to turn around and say, you know what? There is such a thing as international law. That prescribes targeting of civilians. That is a reasonable thing to ask Hamas to adhere to. That wasn't rethought. That wasn't done. And we are where we are. 
And we're now waiting to see. Hamas wanted elections. Hamas has criticised the cancellation of elections. And we're now possibly, I don't want to exaggerate, this isn't automatically going to happen, we're possibly on the cusp of an escalation in violence. Again, this neglected file will have contributed to that. Daniel, can I ask a follow-up here? From the Palestinian perspective then, based on what you just said, why would they think that elections would be an opportunity for any kind of rejuvenation or renewal rather than just feeding into the ludicrousness that you just described, in a way kind of affirming these ludicrous policies? Well, first of all, I think many Palestinians would say elections aren't the first place we'd go. Palestinians who want to see that rejuvenation, especially non-elections to the institutions of Oslo, of the Palestinian Authority. But I think that as as time has passed and as all accountability, all oversight, all checks and balances to rule by presidential decree have frittered away, and as the PLO institutions have become ever more distant from Palestinian communities, whether in the occupied territories or in the diaspora or in the refugee camps in the region, I think people did begin to say, look, this is what we've got. The Legislative Council of the PA has been disbanded. No legislative oversight. The judicial system has been eroded. No judicial, real judicial oversight. We have to do something that can perhaps instill some movement in this extremely plodding, um, strategically disoriented, if not collapsed body. And there was some enthusiasm. So I think there is a real issue here of do Palestinians see redress of their circumstances via these institutions and, and, and this democratic process. And I think that's a challenge. But nonetheless, 93% registered. So they, they were ready to vote. 36 lists put up candidates. You did see some of the civic leaders, civil society leaders, younger people, 15 years in a, in a community with the demographic profile of the Palestinians, which reflects the demographic profile of many places in the global south. They've never been part of any process. So the feeling was maybe you could get some new blood in there, get some new life in there, challenge these old men who invariably lead this body, which is precisely the reason that the old men who lead the body were circumspect in their enthusiasm and didn't go through with it. Let's move to Israeli politics in a moment. But could I just ask about sort of the Israeli position regarding the elections. Am I right to take from what you've said that Israel took steps, you know, essentially the, the steps you talk about in East Jerusalem, arresting some candidates, that sort of made it easier for Abbas to cancel, in essence? Yes. I mean, the the strong sense, and, and we spoke to people and did interviews, and it seems pretty clear that there was not only the interventions that you've mentioned, but there is an intensity of ties between the uh, Palestinian Authority security forces, which they constantly threaten on the Palestinian side to end those ties. But there's an intensity of ties between them and the Israeli security forces. And there was an ongoing sending of, of messages at the very highest levels as well. Um, you know, this is not a good idea. It's unpredictable. Hamas, don't go forward. But then one has to see it, you know, going back to there's nothing normal about this situation. The context is all defining. It's a context of occupation and entrenched control. So then one goes back to that. 
And one says, why didn't Israel want these elections? Well, precisely for the same reasons that a Palestinian who wants to see political renewal and change would want those elections. And in the paper we put out on this, we said it was it was exactly that flip side to why some Palestinians supported the vote, because it's an on-ramp potentially to strengthening Palestinian capacity and agency and overcoming division and reintegrating Gaza. And Palestinian division as an ongoing thing was not something that Israel, by happenstance, stumbled on. You know, you hardly reinventing the wheel to say that you're better off with an enemy that is divided, at war with itself, unable to uh, carry its remit of even limited authority to all the territories under question. And this has been a fantastic excuse for the last years as to why, why can't we improve the situation on Israel-Palestine? Well, look, the Palestinians are divided. They can't get their act together. So this is, that's been the gift that keeps giving. And it's been perfect for this both sidesism. So when anyone in the international community speaks about it, they say, the things the Israelis and Palestinians have to do, well, okay, yes, but there is an occupying party and an occupied people. There's a huge asymmetry of power. So, you know, these were very useful things for the Israelis to have in play. And why give up on those? Not that elections would have resolved all of them. But from that perspective, elections might have been the slippery slope to the Palestinians getting their act together. So, Daniel, as we heard, the... Um the Israelis voted a few weeks ago. And as we speak, we're recording this on Tuesday. I think by the time listeners hear this, it might be clear if Benjamin Netanyahu, prime minister, has been successful in forming a government. But could you say something about where that where that process stands? Yeah. So <clears throat> fourth round of Israeli elections in the space of two years. At each turn, impasse produced further impasse. The coalition politics didn't produce an outcome with any longevity. In fact, only once did it produce a new government, which was the most recent time where we've almost, I think it's been a year uh, between the the previous round and this round. Um, But even that wasn't stable and soon fell apart. What we can say at this stage, and on Tuesday night, so a few hours after we're talking, the 28 days that were granted by the president to Benjamin Netanyahu to try to form a government expire. Netanyahu was granted first turn at forming a government because more of the MKs in the 120-seat parliament were in favour of his continued leadership than the leadership of anyone else, but he didn't get to the magical 61. He didn't get to that half plus one majority in the Knesset. What we can say at this stage with a degree of certainty is, number one, Netanyahu has been very weakened. We'll discover soon whether he has been weakened in a way that means he will no longer be prime minister. But the things that have gone on during these 28 days reflect a somewhat panicky retreating into a corner Netanyahu. So he has offered other people to be prime minister in a rotation where he would be the alternating prime minister, but he wouldn't go first. And he said and done things that hadn't been tried before. Number two, if indeed Netanyahu is not going to be prime minister, then there is not a kind of more liberal-leaning alternative coalition or leader waiting in the wings. But he has cast such an enormous shadow over Israeli politics for so long that this will be a very big deal 
if and when the Netanyahu era comes to an end. I think, at least, there will be a degree of unpredictability and fluidity in Israeli politics that could go in different directions. None of the directions are pieces around the corner, by the way. But um, but we haven't been here. We don't know what post-Natan... He's, he's been such a dominant personality. Next, we can say with a degree of certainty that in the newly elected parliament, there is a right-wing majority. The only reason that is not coming to the fore, that there is not a simple right-wing coalition, is the person of Netanyahu. Some of the right-wing parties, hard right-wing parties, are not prepared to sit under his leadership. Their personal disdain for him, the way he has treated them, to give them some credit, the way he has run roughshod over the very forms of Israeli governance and governing structures and democratic structures. But there is a clear right-wing majority. It's probably two-thirds of the Knesset. That underlying reality is likely to manifest itself at some stage. The other thing to say, though, is while there's no ideologically coherent liberal alternative to Netanyahu, the alternative that does exist would be a, a, a very strange, but in some ways balanced, a coalition of the hard right, the right, the centre, and the Zionist left. Uh, and it might rely on the support of some of the uh, parties representing the Arab citizens of Israel, 20% of the citizenry. So it will be a very hybrid coalition. It will be a coalition that doesn't lean itself to dramatic moves in any direction, because you're constantly navigating between those uh, streams. But it might at least mitigate some of the worst excesses of the previous government in terms of uh, policy towards the Palestinians and perhaps regional policy. The last thing I'd say on that is we could go to a fifth round of elections. It's not clear that a government will emerge and that one of the rays of light that has, has come out of this entire process is that Israelis see the parties representing the Palestinian citizens of Israel that I've just referenced more as legitimate coalition partners than they have done in the past. Now, that should never have been a question, right? I mean, this is 20% of the citizenry. How can you exclude them? But they always have been excluded. They might still be excluded, but that debate has been entered into in a way that we hadn't seen previously. And that holds out, I think, some hope for a more robust um, politics that is inclusive in the future without, again, wanting to get carried away with that. Daniel, could we move then to the US? We've just had four years of President Trump. You and I have discussed this sort of on the one hand, Trump's policy was a big departure, sort of no pretense of a just resolution to the conflict, sort of active support of Israeli settlements, backing of Israel's hard right. You know, but in other ways, sort of is that so much worse than the previous two presidents who sort of, to put it bluntly, paid lip service to peace as Israeli governments kind of dismantled any hopes of, of a viable Palestinian state? I, I don't know what you make of whether Trump was a big departure or what direction you think a Biden administration will, will take Israel-Palestine policy? I think it's fair to consider there to have been both elements of continuity and change in what we saw under Trump. So I don't think you could have gotten to where he took things without building on what he inherited, which were the failures of the Oslo years and of previously the failures to hold Israel to account. But I also think it's 
insufficient and incorrect to try and capture Trump exclusively as the natural end destination point of pre-existing American policy. I, and I don't think that was true in other areas of policy either. So I think there was an, an egregious excess, an embrace of settlements, an embrace of greater Israel, an embrace of the marginalization of the Palestinian issue, an embrace of gratuitous cruelty towards the Palestinians that I think it would be inaccurate, to be fair, to attribute to previous administrations. I think there will be the turning of a corner on some of the excesses of the Trump era, but, and unfortunately the the but's pretty (laughs) significant here, which is in a presidency that shows surprising signs of being transformational in many respects, certainly domestically, um, and that may equip itself in various ways uh, on the international stage um, in a in a kind of more normative rights according way. Uh, that is not likely to extend to the Palestine file. But I think when when it comes to Israel, there will be first of all an exceptionalism that goes beyond uh, the regular inconsistency. There will be the domestic politics which fuels that. Uh, There will be the extent to which the folks in the Biden administration do not want to prioritise this, but also their takeaway from their previous services. You don't get anything from leaning in uh, on this era. And there is no golden era of American policy to return to. So I I fear that what we will get is... um, some improvement on the low-hanging stuff that may be the less consequential stuff. It, it does matter that America is going to fund UNRWA again, the UN agency that supports Palestinian refugees. That, that's an important thing. It matters that the bilateral uh, political dialogue with the Palestinians uh, has been resumed. But there is so much to undo and rebuild afresh that we are unlikely to see them engaging with the position the position they took on elections that we were just discussing, which was to say this is up to the Palestinians and then to repeat the quartet conditions on Hamas, was not a good place to be. Of course, it's not up to the Palestinians. We've just discussed how Israel prevented the vote in East Jerusalem, arrested candidates. We've just discussed the impact of the quartet conditions. So that's not a good place to be. There's a caveat to everything I'm saying, which is there are shifting terms of debate inside US politics on Israel-Palestine, and especially inside the Democrat Party. Now, I don't think that yet feeds into a congressional caucus where there are enough members who are going to go out to bat on this issue. And they're going to say, no, we're going to put into play other things you want from us because we need to see you showing a little more ankle on how you treat Palestinian rights. But things are beginning to veer in that direction. You see it in the polling. Uh, There is a very significant divide now between Republicans and Democrats uh, on this issue when they're polled. There's a significant generational divide of younger Americans, and they want to see an America that's more even-handed and that's ready to challenge the more powerful party, Israel, when it is... uh, violating international law, abusing human rights, 
and undermining American interests. Of course, the flip side to that is you have a Republican Party more solidly aligned, not just with Israel, but with a particular vision of Israel, with a a Likudist pro-settler Israel that is absolutely in lockstep uh, with that vision and where the influence of the dispensationalist evangelical community uh, is a very prominent factor. Daniel, you recently authored a report called Breaking the Status Quo, and there you call for an approach that prioritizes rights and a rights-based approach. Could you tell us a bit about about this? So this is a report that I co-authored with um, colleagues, actually, at the Carnegie Endowment, and we're not coming up with something that no one has said before. We have our own approach to with some humility, how we're trying to define rights-based. And we think that that will continue to emerge organically from those impacted by the conflict and especially on the Palestinian side. But what we've tried to wrap our heads around in, in this paper is that there is a price to be paid for approaching this conflict with the mentality of we're almost there, one more push and we'll get over the hill. There's a quick fix to be had Let's get them negotiating again. And the the precious thing that one needs to be wrapping in cotton wool and protecting is the peace process itself. And what we argue is that if if your emphasis is on preserving a peace process, you've lost sight of the actual goal. And the goal right now, and there's no peace to be had, there's no deal to be had, The goal is to wrap cotton wool around the people whose lives are being most negatively impacted, who are suffering the consequences of what's going on on the ground. And so we're saying, if you take a step back and say, okay, people are being displaced, people are having their basic rights and freedoms restricted, people have been under a decade and a half long blockade in Gaza, how do we take what we've made important in according to Israelis, which is their well-being, and try and apply that to Palestinians as well? And what we've argued is that if if that becomes your focus, if you say, how do we try and protect and secure maximally that we can those long neglected rights and the well-being of Palestinians, then you'll begin to free up the space to create the new building blocks, the new scaffolding, which may lead you back to peace efforts in the future. That's the way of challenging the thing that most erodes the prospects for a future resolution which is the Israeli sense that we can get away with anything, which has fed this strengthening of the Israeli right. If there's impunity, if there's no accountability, then why on earth should Israel take a different position towards the Palestinians? In in a conflict that's been sort of unusually framed in, in the language and the discourse of international law, from the Palestinian perspective, why accept the idea that a that a reaffirmation of a discourse of rights and international law bears any promise for them? Because those things have only been affirmed in rhetoric and mm. they've been neglected in policy and in practice. Mm. And because the peace process has so patently failed to deliver. And the, the, the terms of this conflict have only deteriorated and appear to be more intractable as a consequence of the approach that one is taking. So I think it again goes back to why there is 
this deep-seated frustration amongst so many Palestinians at how their own leadership, their own governing authority, appears to have become part of the fixtures and furniture of a system deeply stacked against their interests of a peace process. Daniel, just recently, as again, as we mentioned at the beginning, Human Rights Watch put out this report calling what was happening to the Palestinians, uh, what was happening in Israel, apartheid. The report says, I mean, amongst other things, it says authorities have dispossessed, confined, forcibly separated, subjugated Palestinians by virtue of their identity to varying degrees of intensity. In certain areas, these deprivations are so severe that they amount to crimes against humanity of, of apartheid and persecution. First of all, I'd like to ask sort of what you think of the report. But secondly, I'd like to ask how you think that's going to contribute to people's understanding of the conflict. I mean, I think it's important to locate the Human Rights Watch report in in a body of work that has been building up over the years. And this is something that Palestinian organisations have referenced, both as a term, as a political term, to understand their circumstances, but also as a legal term. So a year plus ago, a group of Palestinian NGOs uh, submitted a, a, a written finding to uh, the relative UN body on the crime of apartheid. Interestingly and courageously, as you mentioned earlier, the Israeli kind of blue chip human rights organisation, Betzelem, came out with their own designation of a regime of Jewish supremacy and apartheid uh, being the way to define what it was they were struggling against. And I think the significant thing in what Human Rights Watch have done, and, and they capture it in the title of the report, which is a threshold crossed Israeli authorities in the crime of apartheid and persecution. The important thing there is that Human Rights Watch have turned around and said, look, we've looked at this through a lens of here's a violation there, here's another violation over there. In this report, we've stepped back and said the aggregate sum of this falls under the definition of a universal legal term. Of course, the connotation is South Africa. But apartheid has a, 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 an existence as an independent, universal legal term now. And this is what Betzelem have said, the Israeli group have said as well. If you can't accurately name and define something, you're unlikely to be best equipped to then challenge it and change it. And in that respect, I think they, they capture a lot of a reality that's there. And they capture something that Israeli leaders have warned against for a long time. So you've had two previous Israeli prime ministers who decades ago turned around and said if we don't get a peace deal if we don't end this we are going to apartheid so they're really affirming something that Israelis of a previous generation uh, have said by the way a, a slew of former members of Knesset came out and signed a statement saying in the context of annexation actually that this is a step to apartheid so the significance of this um, is, is potentially twofold. One is the, the public discourse. So apartheid is obviously you know, a, a powerful term. In my conversations with friends of mine who work in those organisations, I've said, you know, does it resonate, actually? And for me, it's an open question, by the way, generationally, whether the term apartheid has the resonance that I attribute to it, at least. But that is, that's one thing. The, the terms of, de of the debate. But the other thing is, and it goes back to, to, to where we were a couple of moments ago in the conversation 
about um, rights-based approach. It's about saying there is a structure here that needs to be picked apart and undone if we're going to change the reality on the ground. This isn't about one specific aspect of a policy, and it's not about quickly going back to a negotiation. So in that respect, I, I think it's, it's a clarifying moment that carries with it some promise in terms of offering a healthy contribution to the debate, especially against the backdrop of what we were discussing earlier vis-a-vis how this issue looks and is framed inside the Democratic Party. Daniel, a, um, a few days ago, actually, our former colleague Nathan Thrall, I should say as an aside, Nathan wrote this really brilliant piece in the New York Review of Books uh, looking at what the occupation meant in sort of Palestinians' lives. He tells this story of this, this one man's experience with a, with a sort of single tragedy. But on the back of that, Nathan did an interview with Peter Beinhardt, a sort of liberal commentator in the US. And he said something, Nathan said something that, you know, I thought was, was, was really interesting. He said, he was talking about why he left Crisis Group. And he said that it didn't make sense to him anymore to try to speak to policymakers, to political elites, that actually what was needed now were efforts to change popular opinion. That sort of if sort of ordinary Americans knew what was being done in their name with their taxpayer money, that would sort of change the incentives of US politicians lead to greater pressure on Israel. What do you make of that argument? The way I see it is that both the telling of human stories and the policy work are part of the ecosystem that one needs to generate if there's going to be change. But crucial in that ecosystem is political movement building. And so the work that we do by saying, look, if you want to change things, here are the policies you should adopt. Or those personal stories of... This is happening. You should care about it. This should be an affront to you morally. Do something about it. Those things contribute to the ability to build political constituency, political movements that will ultimately drive change. It's partly what we were talking about earlier in terms of how the landscape is shifting in American politics. But it also comes back to the thing that we started this conversation with, which is why it's so crucial to have Palestinian agency. Because I consider one of the things that is most holding back the ability to drive change on this issue, not to be the absence of personal stories, not to be the absence of great policy papers, but to be the absence of a Palestinian struggle, political struggle, with a political movement driving it, with which people can identify and express solidarity. And in saying that, I am in no way undermining or wanting to cast aspersions on friends and others in Palestinian civil society who would, who would rightly say, what you mean? We're, we're leading this struggle. But you know, if one's going to briefly make a very partial South Africa analogy, this couldn't, you couldn't have had an anti-apartheid, successful anti-apartheid movement without an ANC, without a political movement that was carrying this forward. And you don't have a PLO that's doing that. You don't have a Fatah party that's doing that. 
Daniel, thanks uh, so much for that. Really a, a great discussion. Thanks for having me. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Namby. And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a comment, a question, a rating or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.